Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that will be our first reading. As has already been mentioned, we have a good number with us. We do have several who are visiting with us, and we're great, very grateful that you're here. We hope that you'll come back any chance you have to come and worship with us. At this time in our study, we're going to be continuing a series of lessons that we started a couple of weeks ago, looking at the idea of first principles. This morning, our lesson is entitled, The Bible is God's Word. Very quickly, as a way of review, remember a couple of weeks ago, we started this series of lessons by saying that there is a God, and His name is Jehovah. No matter what the world may say, no matter how many people may try to say that they worship God and may call him different names, there is only one God, Ephesians chapter 4. In our last lesson, we said that God has a son and that his son's name is Jesus. And we said that there were three reasons why we can believe that Jesus is the son of God. These were my three reasons. I hope that you thought about the reasons why you believe that Jesus is the son of God. But we saw how archaeological or historical evidence proves that Jesus was a real person. There is no doubt in my mind that there was a man named Jesus who walked this earth in the first century. We went on to say that when you look at the Bible, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Son of God because the Bible tells us that. And then finally we said that Jesus is the Son of God because the Father himself tells us that Jesus is his Son. At least twice at Jesus' baptism and also at the transfiguration where Jesus has changed before his disciples, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we saw last week how that belief is key to our salvation. In John 8 and verse 24, Jesus says, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No matter what the world may say, no matter how people may try to prove that he's not, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, this morning as we think about the Bible... We must believe that the Bible is God's Word. Because when you think about it, how do we know about God? How do we know about Jesus? It's from the Bible. It's from His Word. How can we know who God is? How can we know what His expectations are? How can we know what He likes and what He dislikes? How can we learn about His personality? Well, we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I appreciate Brother Chet reading this. We're going to read a small subsection of it. But look there again in verse 9. Paul writes and says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. What Paul is telling us here is the only way that we can come to an understanding of who God is is if God reveals it to us. 
The only way we can know about God, we can know about Jesus, we can know about the Holy Spirit, we can know about His will, is if He has revealed it to us. Because the Bible makes it very plain, we are not to presume things when it comes to God. We are not to speak presumptuously for God. Look back in the book of Deuteronomy and go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. As Moses is retelling the law and retelling God's expectations for his people, one of the things that might come up is, well, what happens if a prophet comes to us and they say they're speaking for God? They give us a prophecy. They say this is from the one true God. How is it that we're supposed to be able to tell? And God tells them this here in chapter 18 and verse 20. He says, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. God lets his people know very clearly, you don't presume to speak something in God's name if you don't know for sure. If a prophet comes to you and says, I'm telling you a prophecy in God's name, but it doesn't come to pass, or if it contradicts something else that God has said, they're speaking presumptuously, and God says that prophet shall not live. You do not speak presumptuously for God. Over in the New Testament, Peter says something very similar in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. You'll remember the second book that Peter writes is really dealing with false teachers and false doctrines. Talking about those who will come and pervert the gospel of Christ, who will lead people away. Notice starting in verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He says they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Just as God told Moses back in the Old Testament, you do not speak presumptuous for me. Here in the New Testament, Peter says the exact same thing. False teachers, those who spread lies and deceit, they are speaking presumptuously for God. You don't do that. You don't presume to know what God wants us to do. You don't presume to know God wants this or doesn't want this. God must reveal it himself. How can we say that we know God if God has not revealed it? In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, a very familiar passage, one we haven't used in a while. But God sets the record straight in our relationship to Him, where we stand on the pecking order, if you will. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 8, God tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my way, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts... Then your thoughts. Do we really think that we can 
make things up about God and he'll just accept it? Do we really think that we know God better than he knows himself? Well, of course not. Absolutely not. We cannot speak presumptuously for God. Because we have to remember, even God himself tells us that there are some things that God is just not going to reveal to us. There are some things that we're just not going to know. In Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, Moses talks about the secret things belong to God. Well, if they're secret, if God has chosen not to reveal them, can we guess? <laughs> can we come up with our own theories and our own ideas of what God is, of who God is and what he wants? Well, we can, but we're speaking presumptuously for God. So how do we know God? The only way we can know God is if God has revealed it to us. Well, I think that begs the question, well, how does God reveal things to us? We'll go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and I think the writer goes through this progression of how God reveals things to us. In Hebrews 1 and verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the Father, to the fathers, by the prophets. So in times past, God spoke to the prophets. Well, how did God speak to the prophets? Many different ways. I go back, and I, we're not going to turn there this morning, but go back, you think, to Genesis chapter 37. You remember the story of Joseph, right? Well, how did God communicate to Joseph? Well, it was through dreams. In Daniel chapter 2 and also in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, how did God give him prophecies? How did God give him visions? It was through dreams. And we can go through several instances where God, through dreams, communicated with a prophet. With, with the message that he wanted delivered. So sometimes God delivered it in dreams. Well, other times God would just speak face to face with the prophet. You think about Exodus chapter 3 and 4. I think about Moses at the burning bush. How did Moses know what God's message was? Well, God simply told him. God said, this is your mission. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. And we, we know that story. But God just told him directly, this is what... I'm expecting you to do. And there are so many other ways. I think about Jeremiah. You remember Jeremiah talks about how God's words were in his heart, how they burned. Sometimes he wished he, he could just keep it in. Sometimes he wishes he didn't have to preach and have to deliver that message, but it was in him and it burned him to where he couldn't hold it in anymore. Whatever the way that God revealed his message, whatever way that God spoke to the prophets, we could rest assured that God's will was going to be done. Keep a finger here in Hebrews and go over to First Peter chapter or Second Peter chapter one, rather. Second Peter chapter one. It says verse twenty one in the slides. I'm going to jump back up to verse nineteen, rather. Peter says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. No matter which way God gave his message to the prophets in times of old, we can rest assured that God's will was always carried out. 
If he had a message that he wanted to deliver to his people or to any people, it was going to be delivered. God's will was going to be done. So the writer of Hebrews says, that's the way God used to do it. Well, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1, and let's read verse 2 now. So in various, in times past, God would speak to speak using the prophets, but now notice in verse 2. It says, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Well, this fits very well with our lesson last week, does it not? We're at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God speaks to us today through his Son, through Jesus. He is the authority, Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So God's not using prophets anymore. God's not using these other means of communication to get us his message, to help us understand who he is. Rather, he's speaking to us through his son. Well, let's think about that. Go back to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples, talking specifically to the apostles. And in verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So if God is speaking to us today through his son, Jesus himself says, look, I've got a lot of things that you're just not going to understand right now. There's a lot of things that Jesus couldn't cram into that three and a half years during his ministry to help his disciples, to help the apostles know exactly what he wanted them to know. So notice in verse 13. He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So notice the progression here. The writer of Hebrews says, God, yes, he used prophets in times past. But in these last days, the days that we're living in, he speaks to us through his son. Here in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I've got a lot of things to tell you. But someone's going to come and help you remember these things. He's going to guide you to all truth. And he is going to take the words of mine and give them to you. So notice the progression once again. The words of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and now we have the apostles. Well, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, and notice what Paul says about the words that he writes. In First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Speaks to us through Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit helped the apostles know what to write. The apostles wrote and they spoke. And Paul says, we spoke the words of God. Notice how all of this ties together. How do we know about God today? It's through His Son. His Son has revealed things to the apostles and the apostles wrote it down. Therefore, we can know who God is. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Very familiar verse, right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. I've heard it said many times, and you have as well, that word inspired that Paul uses there. The literal translation there is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed to us. It is from God that the Bible is God's Word. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to ask you the same question I've been asking you the past couple of lessons. We believe the Bible is God's Word, right? You believe the Bible reveals to us who God is, who Jesus is, what He expects us to do, how to be saved, we recognize that's what, the, that's what the Bible is. But there are a lot of people in the world that don't believe that. There are a lot of people in the world who believe that the Bible is just another book. It's just another book. It, it, it's a religious work. They hold the Bible the same regards as the Koran, as the writings of all these other religious groups. It's no better, it's no worse, it's just another book. Why do we believe that the Bible is truly God's Word? Why do you believe that it's God's Word? Why are you so sure that the Bible that we have, these 66 books, are the words of God? How can we be sure that these truly are the inspired, God-breathed words? I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe and I hope in there are these lessons, and I really do want to challenge you to think about why you believe these things. Why do you believe that there's a God? Why do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Why do you believe that the Bible is God's Word? So let me give you three reasons why I believe it. One of the biggest things in my mind is the archaeological evidence that we find in the Bible. For years, people would, would try to discredit the Bible by saying the Bible is not historically accurate, and because it is not historically accurate, it cannot be infallible, and if it's not infallible, then it cannot be the Word of God. What's amazing to me, and you can go and you can read, and we're not going to spend time because this could be a whole lesson in and of itself, What's amazing to me is that anytime someone has gone out and tried to prove that the Bible is not accurate, what they've actually done is proven the opposite, that the Bible is true. And I'm going to give you two examples, and there's so many that we could look at, but these are my, two of my favorites. I mentioned this before, the nation of Hittite. When you go through the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, there's around 47 to 48 references of the Hittite nation in the Bible. Probably some of those famous in the book of Genesis, it talks about the Hittites. In the book of Joshua, it talks about Israel was going to fight against the Hittites. Do you remember Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba? 
he was a Hittite. Skeptics long claimed that there was never any proof of the Hittite nation. And so because there was no such nation, the Bible could not be true. And for centuries, people would use this argument and say, there were no people ever called the Hittites. So the Bible's false. Well, brethren, as early as 1834, there was a French archaeologist. He didn't realize it at the time, but he had found ruins of the Hittite civilization. Later on in the early 1900s, as they unearthed more and more around present-day Turkey, they found a lot of information about a nation that they had never heard of called the Hittites. And so over time, as they uncovered more ruins and more archaeological evidence, what they came to realize is, guess what? The Bible was true. That there was a nation called the Hittites, and at the height of their power, they rivaled both Assyria and the Egyptians. But people tried to prove that the Hittites didn't exist. The Bible was true. Another one of my favorite ones to study, and I suggest you go back and do your own research. Don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for anything. But go and read about the discovery of the Hittite nation. Go and read about the discovery of the ruins of Jericho. This one is fascinating. For years, people disputed the idea of the biblical account of Jericho. A city in that day and age, they wouldn't have walls as high as what the Bible describes. There's no way that a city like that could be built. And that's what people would argue for years and years until 1929. A man by the name of Dr. John Gerstein, he went to Palestine he started digging and excavating around where he thought Jericho should be. And guess what he found? He found evidence of Jericho. And what's even more amazing, he found evidence that matched what the Bible said. Some of the things that he found is that the walls were so thick that chariots, multiple, could go around the walls. What he found is that because the walls were so thick, guess what? People lived in the walls. Well, we already knew that because doesn't it talk about Rahab? Her house was on the wall. What he found is that the walls, they didn't just fall down. What he described it is it looked like they slid. They crumbled. Well, you know what the Bible says? They fell flat. Surprise, it matched what the Bible said. There's a reason why Paul writes in Romans 3 and verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. There are so many more that we can look at. Like I said, I'd recommend you go and do your own research. These were only two examples and very quickly. But anytime someone tried to disprove the Bible through archaeological evidence, they ended up proving it. And to me, that's amazing. And that proves the accuracy of the Bible. Let me give you a second reason why I believe that the Bible is God's Word. The number of manuscripts, copies that we have of the Bible, it blows my mind. Granted, people will argue you don't have the original. No, we don't have the original. But when you look at the way that archaeologists and historians look at ancient text. To put this in perspective, I want to look at some, some ancient texts that we're probably familiar with. 
Do you remember in our last lesson when we talked about Jesus was a real historical figure, we talked about a Roman author named Tacitus and how he wrote a book called The Annals of Rome? Only two copies of that book survived. They weren't the originals, but two copies survived. And from those copies, historians will say, Annals is a great book to go and learn about Roman society. They hold this book up and say, look at how great this book is. Two copies survived. Have you ever heard of a Greek philosopher named Plato? Out of all of his writings, only seven copies survived. Granted, there are about 254, 255 fragments that people have found, but as far as what we would consider whole copies, only seven have been found. Probably the best example is Homer's Iliad. And for those of you in 4C who have taken uh, Miss Kim's class, I know you've read the Iliad. You've read this. There's about 1,758 copies of the Iliad found. Once again, not originals, but about 1,758 copies. So we're pretty sure that the Iliad, that we have probably as close to the original as we can probably get. Can you guess where I'm going? Over 5,800 complete or mostly complete manuscripts have been found of the New Testament. 5,800. Besides those that were found complete or mostly complete, 13,000 fragments have been found. 10,000 Latin translations from the original Greek have been, founded, have been found. Over 8,000 manuscripts of different languages have been found. Some Egyptians, some Aramaic, all different languages, over 8,000. No other ancient text can say that about itself. And this is just the New Testament. We didn't even go about the Old Testament. The amount of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament is truly amazing. The amount of fragments, the amount of evidence that we have that of what the original said, it far exceeds any other historical document or text of this age. How can that be? How can scrolls be preserved so well were it not by the will of God? How could we have so many if this were not God and if it weren't God's hand? Why do I believe the Bible is God's word? The archaeological evidence the number of manuscripts that we have, and let me give you one more reason. The biggest one in my mind is the accuracy of the prophecies found within. Other than the Bible, who's the most well-known prophet that we can think of in modern day? Most people would probably say Nostradamus. People hold up Nostradamus as he predicted so much that's happened in our day and age. He was a visionary. He was a prophet. 
he was a crock. Go and read some of Nostradamus's prophecies. It's laughable. Because in these writings, one day two figures will fall. He told us about Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy dying. One day a tower will crumble. He knew about September 11th. Brother, I'm going to make a prophecy right now. One day the sun will come up and something bad will happen. I'm a prophet. That's Nostradamus. When you look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't have prophecies like that. Over in 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3 and verse 20. John makes a very interesting statement about God. He says, And by this we know that we are of truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, because God knows all things. God's not guessing. God is not throwing something against the wall and see if it sticks. God is not making vague descriptions of things and letting us run wild with our imagination and say, God is prophesying this and that. God doesn't leave it up to that. What's amazing to me, when God makes a prophecy, He speaks of it as though it's already happened. We've looked at this before, but I want to go back and read Joshua chapter 6. This is God's prophecy, God telling Joshua that He was going to give him Jericho, that they were going to take the city of Jericho. But in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 1, notice the way that God speaks about it. This is the beginning of the chapter. The walls don't fall until the end of the chapter. But in chapter 6 and verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. I have given. Well, that's spoken of as if it's already happened. They don't have the city yet, but God says, I've already given it to you. It's already done. That's the way God speaks about prophecy. When we think about Jesus, scholars estimate between 574 at the high end to very conservatively about 300 times, Jesus is mentioned in the Old Testament and there are prophecies that can be tied directly to him. And we're not talking about vague statements that one day a baby will be born. We're talking about where he's going to be born who his parents are going to be, what lineage he is going to be from, what kind of birth he is going to have. All of those are detailed in the Scripture. Probably one of the best examples of the prophecies of Christ is Isaiah 53. How many times do we read Isaiah 53 before we partake of the Lord's Supper? And it's a great reading. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But if you go through Isaiah 53, there are roughly 15 times that we can correlate Isaiah 53 to Christ. That could be a lesson right there, couldn't it? At least 15 times where it's clearly seen that what Isaiah is writing about is Jesus Christ. Do we recognize that that was 750 years before Christ was born? <laughs> Ish. About 750 years before Christ was born, Isaiah to the detail talked about how he was going to suffer 
talked about how he was going to die, talked about his attitude towards it, talked about who he was going to be buried with. Should it be any surprise that the Ethiopian eunuch had the question that he had? As he's going, as he's in his chariot reading Isaiah 53, should it surprise us he has that question? Who is he talking about? Is this talking about Isaiah or someone else? Of course, Philip takes that opportunity, right, and preaches Jesus to him. But that's just one chapter and one example. The accuracy of the prophecies, the fulfillment in its entirety of the prophecies, to me, it proves that the Bible is God's Word. Can any other book written over a period of roughly 1,500 years by an estimated 40 different writers, can any other book claim to have the authenticity, to have the provenance, can any other book have that? Remember we talked about the Iliad earlier in the lesson? When scholars compared all versions of the Iliad, there was about 5% what they would call textual variation. Meaning that over the years, as scribes wrote down the Iliad over time, there would be variations in the translation. Do you realize that in the Bible's case, as scholars have gone through and compared the 5,800 manuscripts that we have, that less than 1% of variation has been found. Less than 1% of variation has been found. And in the times where there is variation, it does not change the text. Can any other book make that claim? The Bible is the Word of God. It is. Do you hear what Jesus says about His words? Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Brethren, I fully believe, no matter what man may try to do, no matter what man may try to cancel, try to get rid of, the Bible is one thing that will never go away. The Bible is God's Word. Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, because next week will be our singing, but on the 9th, I believe, whatever the second Sunday of October is, we'll talk about that the Bible convicts of sin. Spoiler, that's why a lot of people don't like the Bible. That's a preview of our lesson in a couple of weeks. I hope these lessons help us. I hope these lessons challenge us. We always talk about making our faith our own. I hope you've been asked before, but if not, I hope this really threw you for a little bit when I asked you, why do you believe there's a God? Well, obviously there's a God. I know that there's a God. Why? I hope it's made you think a little bit about your own personal faith. Why do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And brother, I hope this morning when you look at your Bible, you understand that this is not an ordinary book. 
This is not something that, oh man, it's got some great stories in it. It's got some great lessons in it. This is the Word of God. This morning, we haven't talked about the steps of salvation. We haven't talked about the need to be buried in the waters of baptism, but I would tell you, you find that in this book. 1 Peter 3, verse 21, there's an antitype which now saves us, baptism. This morning, if you're here and you've never been buried in the waters of baptism, we'll be happy to study with you. We'll be happy to assist if you're ready for that. But this morning, for those of us that are Christians, who have put on the name of Christ, I hope this helps us understand God's Word a little bit better. But really, what I really, really, really hope it does is it makes it, us appreciate it more. Because if we appreciate God's Word the way that we should, then we're going to want to study it more. And the more we study it, the more we're going to learn about God. This morning, if you're here, and if you're in need of help, if you need the prayers of the saints here, if you need to repent of sin and confess it, if you need to be buried in the waters of baptism, we offer you an invitation right now. And this morning, if you're subject to that invitation, will you let us know as we stand and as we sing this song?